You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Hey everybody, this is Scott O'Donohue, one of the pastors of the Village Church that gathers in downtown Hamilton, Ohio. Uh, This is, I believe, part seven in our series called Not Our Own. This is actually content recapped from uh, a series of classes we're teaching in May of 2021, hoping to cultivate uh, clarity and compassion and an evangelistic community through conversations about gender and sexuality. Uh, if you've not listened to any of the previous episodes, I would encourage you uh, to start at the beginning and work your way through. Uh, I've tried to um, kind of divide this stuff up into some bite-sized chunks, uh, making it a little bit more digestible as you're going through. Um, but man, we're going to look today at Romans 1, 18 through 32, to see what it has to say about same-sex sexuality. Uh, And we'll also look a bit about, hey, what would Jesus uh, have to say about this too? Um, Specifically, the last couple of episodes, we looked at what the Old Testament had to say, and we looked at what uh, 1 Timothy 1 and 1 Corinthians 6 uh, had to say uh, already. And so this is kind of our our final portion, our final bit, uh, around looking at the passages that address same-sex sexuality in the scriptures. Um, So without further ado, uh, we'll just jump in to Romans 1. Again, this is uh, verses 18 through 32. Paul writes this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they knew or know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. All right, so that was Romans 1, 18 through 32. Uh, so there are a few hallmarks of this particular passage um, that I want to walk through uh, that kind of make this, this passage unique. One, uh, it does not use 
the Greek word arsenikoites, which is what much of our, our last episode was about, looking at that particular word, what it means, how it's translated, uh, all of that stuff. So some of the questions and controversy around that particular word uh, are, are moot here. They're just invalid uh, in this particular passage. Uh, it uses plain language for sexual relations, uh, man and woman, desires, passions. These are very plain, uh, relatively neutral words. We know what they mean. Uh, and, and that's kind of it. So that ambiguity uh, is gone because arsenikoites is not used here in the Greek. Secondly, uh, it, it's, it hits on desire and passion, um, passions that lead to impurity, passions that dishonor their bodies or desires that are dishonorable or that uh, they let consume them in some way. And so this is unique because no longer are we just talking about same-sex sexual behavior, uh, we're actually talking about same-sex uh, desires that lead to same-sex sexual behavior. Uh, that's what's being addressed here. Um, the, the Greek words for these things, passions, lusts, uh, they're, they're the same words that are used throughout the New Testament um, about all kinds of things, sexual immorality and all sorts of stuff, regardless of sexual orientation. It's not uh, specifically tied to same-sex uh, lusts or, or anything like that. It's, it's just general words for uh, passions and lusts. Uh, so yeah, we, we see same-sex desires hit on uh, in this passage for the first and, and only time uh, in the New Testament. Uh, thirdly, a hallmark of this passage, it's, it's the one place where lesbian sexual relationships are mentioned, uh, that same-sex sexual behavior between females. It's the one place it shows up as here in Romans 1, uh, which is pretty significant um, because, first of all, it means that we're talking about same-sex sexual behavior in general, uh, not just between men, which is kind of what we've seen uh, thus far in the scriptures, but we're talking about both male and female same-sex sexual behavior. So it's significant for that reason. Secondly, uh, the mention of women sleeping together, um, it serves as a parallel with men. Um, so in, in the passage itself, it says, and the men likewise, uh, dot, 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 after talking about uh, women sleeping with women. And, and this matters because female same-sex sexual behavior was not characterized at all by, uh, by the, the differing power dynamics or consent problems um, that, that did plague some of the relationships and behavior between men. Uh, lesbian relationships were far less common uh, than, than male-to-male same-sex sexual behavior. Um, but when they did occur, they, they were not plagued by the same sort of consent issues and abuse issues there. Um, so the, the parallel, the fact that the, the relationship uh, between men is paralleled with the, the behavior between women um, only kind of affirms this understanding that, uh, that we're talking about mutual, consensual, same-sex sexual behavior here uh, in Romans 1. Um, fourthly, a fourth hallmark of this passage is uh, kind of related to this. There's, there is no distinction between either partner um, in the behavior or in the relationship. It's just simply men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Um, later on, we obviously see there's uh, a big list of sins that are included um, in this passage, and all of them receive death. Uh, and so, man, 
all of those sins, they, they lead us ultimately to uh, the judgment that we deserve uh, from the Lord because of our, uh, our rebellion against him. Um, but we see that the same, the same penalty is given to everybody uh, for all of these sins, and uh, such is the case for, for men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. There's no uh, accommodation at all for uh, a lack of, of uh, consent or an imbalance of power or anything like that at all, which, as we've said before, uh, the scriptures make accommodation for that and the consequences that it doles out, the punishments it doles out. Um, if there is a victim, if there's a survivor, they are uh, let off the hook versus uh, the, the, the perpetrator, uh, the offender, they're the ones who are actually given the punishment um, in those circumstances. We don't see that accommodation here, uh, which just sort of affirms the fact that we are talking about, again, consensual, uh, mutual, same-sex sexual behavior. Uh, and then fifth, uh, and lastly, a hallmark of this passage is at the end of this passage, Paul brings in uh, the approval of this stuff. He brings approval into play here, not just engaging in it, not just doing same-sex sexual behavior, but actually approving of it as well. Um, he says, folks not only do this stuff, but, but there's also no internal conviction uh, seeing that this is wrong, even though they know this is not how God had, has naturally ordered things. They, in fact, they encourage folks uh, to, to engage in this behavior. They approve it. They think it should be good. Uh, and so those of us who are listening to this, that uh, maybe they, we don't experience same-sex sexual attraction, we don't partake in same-sex sexual behavior, um, or any of the other things that are on this list, any of these other sins, um, we should take note that it's not just about doing them uh, that, that's prohibited, but it's about taking caution in what we actually approve and encourage other people to do, what we overlook or what we call good, that this stuff matters. Um, and so, yeah, uh, these are those, those are kind of five hallmarks of this particular passage that are unique in some way or important to draw out for this particular conversation. Now, I think it's important to know kind of what Paul's doing here in this passage. Um, it's kind of significant, and there's some uh, some confusion and some questions that can be kind of thrown out if we don't know what, what Paul is trying to aim at here in, uh, in Romans 1. So he's not randomly targeting same-sex sexual behavior. It might seem like he's picking on uh, that particular uh, thing here in this passage, but he's not randomly doing that. Uh, from Romans 1 to Romans 3, Paul is trying to build this case for how the whole of humanity, both Jews and non-Jews, the Gentiles, um, how, how they are under sin and need Jesus. And, and that includes the people he's writing to. Uh, he wants them to know that they're in the same boat as everybody else. But he's not going to just simply start his letter by saying, hey, um, you all stink and, and you're all sinners and you need Jesus. He, he's not going to start there to like try to get them on board with his argument. Uh, instead, he starts with something they could all agree on, which is, you know, uh, quote unquote, those people out there, uh, the unrighteous, those who know what's right, but they, they don't do it anyway. Um, and so he, he makes this argument that everyone, every single human uh, knows something about God, can perceive his invisible attributes because of the way he's revealed himself in creation. Everybody can observe that. Uh, and despite that, they reject the Lord. And so uh, he then introduces like a, a universally agreed upon rejection of that created order from the Lord. Um, and again, we have to remember uh, like his audience, um, what would play to his audience? What would they agree with? Well, uh, same-sex sexual behavior. Uh, again, we're, we're talking about uh, a Jewish sexual 
ethic here, um, where there was really no debate uh, hundreds of years before and after the New Testament written. There was no debate in Jewish circles around uh, whether or not same-sex sexual behavior was good or not. It was assumed to not be according to God's created order. And so Paul, he kind of uses this uh, particular behavior as a rhetorical device to illustrate uh, this very point because he knows it's low-hanging fruit. People would agree uh, and would accept the fact that this is not okay. This is against the natural order. Um, and as a parenthesis, if they were wrong for thinking that, uh, right, if, if Paul knew that uh, just that, that they would be on board with that but later would have to correct them because that's actually not true anymore, then we would expect him to come back and circle back and say something about that, to correct it and say, you know what, even that though, that's okay now. Uh, but he, he doesn't do that. So um, so anyways, when he's talking about exchanging uh, the creator for creation, he illustrates this by talking about how we've exchanged God for literally our own image, not just uh, another human, but someone who was just like us. Uh, men, uh, we look to other men and, and women to other women. We've literally exchanged the image of God for, for us. Uh, things that look just like us. And he uses same-sex sexual behavior and our passions, our desires, our lusts for that um, as an illustration of this. Which is, it, it's also fitting because Paul clearly has the creation account from Genesis 1 and 2 in mind as he's writing this. He he talks about ever since the creation of the world. He talks about how uh, claiming to be wise, they became fools just like Eve thought that the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would was good to make her wise. Uh, And then he talks about images uh, resembling man, birds, animals, creeping things. Like all of this is explicit language from Genesis 1 and 2. And so with all of that in mind, uh, same-sex sexual behavior for Paul, it's a fitting illustration of this exchange. Uh, And so Paul and his audience, they would have gotten it. They would have been on board. Uh, It was a rhetorical use for sure. And, And again, he goes on to list many other sins, many other rejections of God's order, all of which he says deserve death. Whether it's being a gossip, whether it's being haughty, whatever it happens to be, they all deserve death. And so it's not that same-sex sexual behavior is being uh, pinpointed as something worse. Um, It's just exhibit A for the point that he's trying to make in this exchange. So uh, all of the Jews uh, in the audience that were reading this, all the early Christians, uh, they would have read this and been on board and agreeing. Um, if you go on and, and look at chapter 2, verse 1, the very next verse is, Therefore, uh, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. So it's not just those who do it. Uh, it's not just those uh, who approve of it. But he goes on to those who, uh, who actually judge other people for that because, hey, you know what? You guys, you all do the same thing as well. So he he starts to like, after they're on board, swallow them up in the same argument that they're under sin and need Jesus too. So all of this, kind of Paul's mindset, his rhetoric, all this stuff seemingly affirms uh, the created order of Genesis and it reinforces the existing sexual ethic of the day. Um, Especially without coming back to it at any point in time in his letter to correct it, uh, to say something different, not just about even same-sex sexual behavior. He doesn't come back to correct or loosen any of the other sins that he lists here in Romans 1. Nothing from this chapter is loosened at all. In fact, the whole idea is to kind of tighten it uh, around all of us to to show us our need uh, for Jesus. So that's kind of what's happening in this this chapter. Um, Hopefully that gives you some context that 
kind of helps you see what Paul is up to uh, as he's talking about this. Now, uh, some folks will um, will argue that when Romans 1, talking about natural relations, um, that which is contrary to nature, uh, though what Paul's referring to here is actually heterosexual people who are naturally attracted to the opposite sex, but who now engage in same-sex sexual behavior. Um, he's not talking about those who are naturally same-sex attracted because that that is natural to them. Okay, now hopefully that makes sense. So the exchange is straight folks who now sleep with and, and are maybe even attracted to, uh, have, have passions for the same sex. That's what's unnatural, not naturally same sex attracted folks. Uh, and we've talked before about how, man, culturally, you wouldn't have to have been gay, uh, have some same sex sexual orientation in order to participate in, in culturally accepted and esteemed uh, same-sex sexual behavior, uh, that, that stuff of the day, which is fair, all right? Um, so a couple things in response to that. First of all, um, the natural relations that are in view here uh, are not natural relations as it, as it relates to specific people, um, not, not natural to them. It's natural to the created order in Genesis. Again, this is the context uh, that we're swimming in in Romans 1. This is what, what is on Paul's mind. What's natural here is what's fixed by God, not relative to personal orientation or personal attraction in some way. Uh, the concept of exchange in the first place is introduced first in, in rejecting God as he's revealed himself in creation, uh, exchanging the glory of the creator for the glory of creation, uh, exchanging the truth about God for lies, uh, right? This is where we see that, that idea of exchange introduced in the first place. Uh, and the scope of this whole thing is purposefully universal. It's not just focused on a particular uh, group of people or not. It, it points all the way back to Adam and Eve, uh, culminating in Romans 2, 1, where he says, yeah, and you know what? Like, that's all of you too, even those of you who judge. So uh, the, the argument that Paul is trying to make here is universal. It's not relative. It's not personal. It's not specific to any one particular group of people. Um, it's why he doesn't simply leave it at same-sex sexual behavior or same-sex attraction, but he, he focuses on other sins as well. He brings all of that stuff into it because not everyone's committed uh, all of these sins, including same-sex sexual behavior, right? Um, but certainly most people have judged other people for other sins that other people have committed. So that's where he goes next uh, in his argument. So, so this concept of exchange is introduced in connection with exchanging God's fixed glory and fixed truth with lesser glory and with lies. So we're talking about behavior and attractions that stand in contrast to God's created order as he ordered it in Genesis. All right, so that's what's in view here. Um, and that this argument about, hey, it's really not referring to naturally same-sex attracted people. It's, it's focusing and talking about uh, straight folks who now decide to have sex with people of the same sex or are attracted to people of the same sex. There are a couple questions, and I, I, I don't, these aren't arguments per se, but they're questions I would have for those who make that argument is that what does then attraction look like? Because it seems like in this, uh, kind of in that line of thought, we see then straight people almost change who they're attracted to or change who their passions and their desires are for um, of the same sex, which that usually that, that change or that flip um, of who we're attracted to, that's not a particularly uh, 
uh, popular idea on the affirming side of the argument um, in this whole conversation about uh, sexuality in general, um, which so that kind of seems to like muddy the waters a bit, a little bit as we're talking about that stuff, but then also uh, sexual fluidity, which again, these are, this wasn't even a category uh, of thought back in the day um, when this was written, but how, how does sexual fluidity as we understand it now, again, if you are um, kind of using modern categories, if you're now, on the affirming side of this, how does sexual fluidity then also fit into these categories as people might change who they're attracted to, their, their desires, their passions might change over time. And who's to say that at one point what's natural now no longer is natural or, uh, or whatnot. So there are some questions I have around that for those who might make that argument. Um, yeah, so some food for thought around that stuff. There are lots of other things we could dig into there, but uh, I'll leave Romans 1 uh, there for the time being uh, and kind of give our verdict. So so my verdict for that particular passage is that Romans 1, uh, it prohibits same-sex sexual behavior and same-sex attraction that leads to same-sex sexual behavior in general, all right? Uh, so it prohibits same-sex sexual behavior and same-sex sexual attraction that leads to same-sex sexual behavior in general for both men and women, all right? So that's what we've seen in Romans 1. And if we step back and just take a look at what we've seen in general in the passages in the Bible that talk about same-sex sexuality, um, we kind of reach this conclusion. We, we do not see any instance of anything other than holy, heterosexual, monogamous relationships and the sexual behavior in that kind of a marriage. We don't see anything else called good or blessed in the scriptures. Um, the explicit shift, the explicit openness that we see with uh, Gentiles coming into the church and having to follow the law, uh, the loosening of food laws in general for everyone, we don't see that with same-sex sexuality anywhere. Um, any place that same-sex sexuality is discussed, um, same-sex sexual behavior and same-sex sexual attraction that leads to same-sex sexual behavior, they're prohibited outright in general. Uh, in fact, if we were to go to Acts 15, um, and take a look at when the, the Gentiles, uh, man, they were starting to, to join God's family. They were believing the gospel, wanting to become part of God's family. Um, there was a huge clash between the Jews uh, and the Gentiles and with the apostles uh, trying to understand, okay, like our faith has been carried through from the Old Testament to today, but now we have folks who are coming into the church without ever having been circumcised, without following the law, um, in light of Jesus, do, do they need to follow the law? These, these non-Jewish converts to Christianity who want to come and become part of the church, do they have to follow the law? This was a point of contention. Uh, this was part of the messiness of the early church inviting folks from outside, in the culture, in the world, into uh, the life of God's people. And so they actually called a council together. Uh, this is called the Jerusalem Council. It's the first church council that we see, um, and it's recorded in the scriptures. And we see kind of their verdict, their verdict in Acts 15 about what should we say uh, to those Gentiles coming in? Are there any laws that are binding on them when they come in? And so this is what they say in Acts 15 in a letter to the Gentiles. Uh, the, the apostles write this, that uh, it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you, the Gentiles, no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what has been strangled, all right, so from, 
from sacrifices. They don't want uh, these new Gentiles to fall back into practices that might actually like take their hearts and their minds to worshiping and making sacrifices to false gods. So that's fair. That's what they're saying here. Um, and this is the only other requirement they have for them is that they abstain from sexual immorality. All right, so, so that is a blanket statement that reinforces the existing sexual ethic within the church, within the Jewish tradition, within uh, the tradition that, that the church absorbed and, and went along with in the New Testament. So, so we see here, this was the opportunity uh, for them to officially declare what was good or right or not uh, with the Gentiles coming in, and they actually reinforce what was already understood to be the sexual ethic of God's people. All right, so one final thing uh, for this particular episode um, is, is this. What does Jesus actually say uh, about, about sexuality? Um, the reality is he doesn't address same-sex sexuality anywhere. He doesn't talk about it. Um, part of that is because this was not, again, a debated issue amongst the Jewish people, amongst the Christians. Like, th- th- there was no need to talk about it because there was no debate about it in the day. Once again, there was solid agreement on this particular issue hundreds of years both before and after writing of the New Testament. Um, So what we do see, if we look at Mark chapter 10, uh, verses uh, 2 through 12, we see Jesus being questioned uh, about divorce. This is what what happened. So let me read the passage for you. Um, Pharisees came up and in order to test Jesus asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote to you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. All right, so that's the passage um, that I want us to look at in terms of what what might have Jesus said about this back in the day. Um, So what's actually happening here is the Pharisees are trying to to pit Jesus, to trap Jesus, uh, to get him to pick between two uh, contemporary Jewish schools of thought for them at that point in time. There was uh, Hillel, which was a school of thought for the Jews, which was kind of the more liberal, uh, progressive side of things. And there was Shammai, uh, another school of thought that was the more conservative side of things. The Shammai school of thought um, basically said that, that, man, you cannot divorce your wife for any reason at all except for sexual immorality. That was the one case that they allowed for. Uh, the Hillel group, on the other hand, that school of thought uh, literally said that if your wife made you a bad dinner, if she burnt your meal, then you could uh, go for a certificate of divorce. You could divorce your spouse uh, for that reason. So these were the two schools of thought of the day, and the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus in this particular question. And what we see Jesus do is he actually sides, sides with the more stringent school, the more conservative school, the Shammai. Uh, and in fact, he takes it further, saying you shouldn't get divorced ever, uh, right? God has brought these two together. No one should separate it. But if you have to divorce, 
Um, it's for hardness of heart. It's for sexual immorality. Um, and in, in having that conversation, Jesus cites the created order. He goes back to Genesis, cites the fact that men, uh, or that we remain male and female and brought together in a, in a one flesh union um, where we get to, to join together from different families and form new families to leave and cleave uh, to our spouses. So he affirms uh, what we already have read and talked about even in this series in Genesis. And so Jesus in this passage, not even Jesus was on, on the, the liberal side, the progressive side of Jewish thought of his day. All right, now we, we cannot, I want to be very careful, we cannot say that, that what we label as conservative and liberal or progressive or whatever today, like those categories do not have the same meanings as they did back then. Uh, but in terms of the loosening of restrictions or the loosening of things, what we see is that Jesus does not take the looser side of things here. Um, in fact, he, he sides with the more uh, stringent, uh, by the letter, by the book, uh, conservative line of thought here around marriage, around relationships, uh, all of that stuff. And so what, what we would have to do, I think, uh, in order for Jesus to say something entirely different than, than what we have talked about these last few episodes throughout the scriptures, we would have to remove Jesus from his Jewish context uh, and, and make him say something that, that we just simply don't see him say anywhere else in Scripture in order for us to, to say that Jesus would affirm um, same-sex sexual behavior, same-sex attraction that leads to same-sex sexual behavior in any way, shape, or form. Jesus himself is the Word of God made flesh, right? All of the, the law, all of the wisdom, uh, all of the truth that, that they had in the Old Testament at the time, Jesus is that Word made flesh flesh who came not to abolish the law but to fulfill it and so with that being said i i just think if we want jesus to say something contrary to what uh hopefully you've seen and what i've tried to demonstrate um throughout these last few episodes by looking at the scriptures for, for us to say that jesus would say something different from that would it would require us to i think take jesus away from his context to, to remove jesus from who he really was uh, flesh and blood in the time of the New Testament and kind of co-opt his words, uh, co-opt other texts to make it say something different um, than what it actually meant. So that said, I'm not about putting words in Jesus' mouth at all. Um, and at the same time, I think it's incredibly important that we take Jesus at his words and let him live as he did in his context as a, a Jewish man in the first century who seemed to side with this particular school of thought as it related to marriage and the relationships between men and women. So that being said, I'm going to leave this there uh, for the time being. Next time we come together, I want to talk about something that the scriptures have not talked about, um, don't explicitly talk about ever, which is orientation. Uh, and this is a, a really important conversation for us to have. We'll talk about the categories that we have today culturally and how those might overlay on top of the scriptures, uh, so on and so forth. But I'll leave it at that for today. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.